This is Iron Sports. We're pleased to have back to the show uh, the famous author Jeff Perlman on his book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming back on our show. I feel like famous author might be an exaggeration. I think Stephen King is a famous author. <laughs> Maybe Michael Lewis is a famous author. I'm just a schlub carting around a book. But thank you. Well, you interviewed 720 people for this book, and uh, it seems like this is about his research. You wanted to have the definitive biography of uh, Bo Jackson. I think you succeeded in that. But talk about the title, The Last Folk Hero. What does that mean? You, you know, nowadays you look around and there's some, you know, some hot 16-year-old kid who can throw a fastball in 98, you're going to see a video of it. Or some football player who's a high, a junior high phenom, we're going to see it on Twitter, you know? And it's all very deliberate. But back when Bo was coming along, it was all just rumor and innuendo and word of mouth and stories like folklore. And even now, when we look back at Bo, a lot of the stories are folklore. And, oh, you should have seen this home run. You should have seen this. If only you saw this. He dented a car. He scaled a tree. All these things. We don't see it. We just have to believe it. And that makes him more of a folk hero and a mythological figure than an actual person in some ways. I grew up in the, with the whole Bo Jackson era, so I lived it. Um, people come back and look at his statistics. I mean, he rushed for 2,782 2, yards in 38 games. He had 141 home runs, 450 RBIs, 250 average. Not mm -hmm. close to being in the Hall of Fame. And yet, if you ask someone today, you know, you ask the young kid, it's like, well, what, why, why do we need a big book on him? And I think that's what I think it takes out because it's more than just, he's way more than just the statistics. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know. I don't think most kids know about Bo Jackson or they know him in vague terms. And I hate that. I, again, he's the greatest athlete, in my opinion, who ever walked the earth. I really mean that. And I always say like, in a way to go back to statistics a little bit, he won his, at McAdory High in Alabama, he won back-to-back state-decathlon championships. That's five state individual track and field records. Was uh, a second-round draft pick of the New York Yankees. Stole 90 of 91 bases. Set a national record with 20 home runs in a high school season. Wound up going to Auburn where he ran a 4-1-3-40. Won the Heisman Trophy. Was a number one pick in the NFL draft. Would have been the number one pick in the Major League draft if they knew he was going to go to play baseball. Went to the Raiders. Ran a 4-1-7 on grass. Uh, he's the only guy to ever play in a major league all-star game and the NFL pro bowl on and on and on. Like he's just, he could have been an Olympic sprinter. It's just, a, he's a ridiculous level of athleticism. And you did mention that he had a three, six seconds to first base, the fastest recorded time from uh, for right-hand hitter to first base and second fastest, second, second fastest. Mickey <laughs> and, uh, but remember you said four, one, three, 40, but let's remind that someone says they're four, three, 40 right now. That's super fast. And he's 225 pounds. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I always say Tyreek Hill is probably the fastest guy in the NFL right now. Bo outweighed him by about 40 pounds. And Bo Jackson was faster than him. Bo Jackson was faster than Tyreek Hill. If Bo Jackson were wearing pads and Tyreek Hill were wearing nothing but spandex and, and running shoes, Bo Jackson was faster than him. It's, and how it, many places and stadiums have the longest home runs that anyone has ever hit? Places that no one's hit a ball there, but Bo Jackson hit a ball there. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my favorites is uh, he was taking BP at the Metrodome, the old Metrodome in Minnesota, and he hopped into the cage lefty and hit the longest home run to right field. And he did it left-handed in the history of that stadium. So just goofing around. Yeah, it's a different level. How about the other myth, or actually the story you said, a myth that you, you confirmed, but in the Superdome, when he was just standing there trying to kick the ball to hit the scoreboard on the top of the ceiling. Now it's different than it is today. You see it in the in the Cowboys stadium, but it was very high. He literally just took the ball, you said, and threw it up to the top. Yeah, so it only, the scoreboard, 
angst from the middle of the stadium. And only two guys had ever hit it as punters. One was a Vanderbilt punter in 1977. The other was Ray Guy. And Bo Jackson stands under it and he tries just the punter for Auburn, Louis Colbert, was trying to hit it. Couldn't do it with his foot. So Bo stands under it, throws, doesn't get it, does a second time. And they just it's a dark stadium. They just hear dang, and he hit the thing. I mean, again, he's just he threw a ball at Auburn. He threw an end zone to end zone. The quarterback at Auburn couldn't come close to throwing an end zone to end zone. He had the best arm on the team. He was a kicker in in high school. Just ridiculous. You mentioned one time, oh, yeah, I just want to, these myths are amazing. How about when he hit the ball to like left field and ran around the bases before it was caught? Yeah, that's one of my favorites. That was when he was in high school and they were playing Fairfield High. He was a McAdory and he hit a ball to left field. And by the time it came down, he was rounding third. And I, I didn't really believe it. It didn't sound that legit. And I started <laughs> interviewing more and more people who were there for it. And then I talked to the, the actual left fielder, Eddie Scott from Fairfield High, and he swore to me. That the ball was hit. He said it's the highest ball I've ever seen hit. It comes down, and there's Bo rounding third. And I'm like, oh my God. And he rounded third and scored on a high fly ball to left field. And you mentioned so much time in your book about growing up in Bessemer, Alabama. And he grew up poor, 10 people to a house. Um, his dad was there in town, but but not involved in his life. Uh, and and the st story of many other kids in terms of he could have gone either way. He could have been a, he used to beat up kids. He was mean. He he was he he could have gone to jail, but instead, you know, he found sports and that sort of changed everything. Yeah, and it always sounds like a cliche because there are a lot of stories of kids. You know, sports has saved a lot of kids and has made a lot of kids. And um, it always sounds cliche, but with him, it's really true. I mean, he was he grew up dirt, dirt, dirt poor, single mom, Bessemer, Alabama oftentimes wearing his sister's hand-me-down shoes to school. And if they were unavailable, he'd wear socks, just socks to school. He was a bully. He had a severe stutter. He was held back a grade, on and on and on. And, um, you know, his nickname, Bo, is short for Borhog, which is short for Bohog, which is a pronunciation in the South, because he spent three days, him and his friends, going to the neighbor's farm with sticks and trying to kill the largest boar hog they could find. And they just spent three days beating the crap out of this hog. So he was a bad kid and sports came along and he had this gift and coaches sort of saw it in him and, and nurtured it and cultivated it. And here he sits. I mean, he's six years old now and he lives in suburban Bur Burr Ridge, Illinois with his wife and his kids. And he's a grandpa and he's had a really good life. And then when he grew up there, I mean, as much as he became a legend and people followed him, the town was so small, but there were other, I mean, I mentioned names, you, you put Marcus Dupree and there's that 30 for 30 special on Dupree. When you look at the grainy films, I mean, he was the famous running back that everybody was talking about. There was even running backs. You mentioned other running backs that people were talking about. I thought, I thought the one little story you had about recruiting was that Lee Corso, who we see on game day in ESPN was the first one to send him a recruiting letter, but yeah, uh, yeah. it, it was yeah. that whole high school, you know, with the track and everything that it, the legend just grew, but not, he wasn't the most famous high school player of all time. No, not at all. If anyone ever does a list and they say, 50 greatest high school athletes of all time, and they include Bo Jackson on it, they wouldn't even really know what they're talking about because most people weren't around to see Bo Jackson. And it wasn't like now we have scouting bureaus coming out. Now, like baseball scouts started coming because there was a guy, Kenny Gonzalez, who was a scout with the Royals, who very early on, he knew someone in McAdoo and he said, you need to come see this guy. And Kenny Gonzalez went out and saw him and couldn't believe what he was watching. So there definitely was baseball interest early, but he was football wise. He was the fifth rated player in Alabama. Uh, he was the second running back. The first was a kid named Allen Evans out of Enterprise High School, who was rated much higher than Bo on national scales. I mean, they were running back. Marcus Dupree, you mentioned, 
had schools camping out in Philadelphia, Mississippi, literally people moving there to recruit him and woo him. Bo Jackson was way under the radar. He also happened to play in a high school backfield with two other really good running backs. So he probably averaged 11 carries a game. He wasn't getting it 30 times. That's the one thing about his entire career. He was always in backfields, even in Auburn. And then even when he was the Raiders, it was with Marcus Allen. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was, he was Lionel James, other running backs at Auburn. He just, he never really, he rarely had games where he carries the ball like 30, 35 times. But I loved your recruiting stories about um, when he said, okay, I'm only going to go to Alabama or Auburn. And I just went to the Auburn. I went to an Auburn Penn State game this year. So the first time I was down there at Auburn, what a beautiful place. And the yeah. whole story about Bear Bryant and Pat Dye and how he chose between the two schools. Well, I mean, I think he would have gone to Alabama if Alabama showed real interest, but they were very lukewarm. This was when when uh, Bear Bryant, it was his last season coaching. He definitely had lost a bunch of steps. He wasn't really into it the same way he'd been. And you have this guy under your nose who's a freakish athlete and you don't even realize it. And you, the defensive coordinator, Ken Donahue, was the main recruiter for Alabama in regards to Bo. And he told Bo, you know, we think you could be a really good defensive player. Well, that was, you know, red flag number one. And number two was, we think you can help us in two or three years. And that was red flag number two. And Pat Dye comes <laughs> along and he wants him right now. Now, the other thing that goes unspoken is there was a booster for Auburn who sort of circled around Bo's life. And he was based in the same town and he was giving him money for this and money for that. Uh, I can't tell you if that was the reason he went to Auburn. I mean, Auburn gave him this golden opportunity. I think that was number one. But the booster culture back then was really sort of a thing. And then it was the whole challenge throughout his life. And I had David Marinus on our uh, show who talked about Jim Thorpe many, many years before that in terms of playing both, both sports. And that was the question. Are you going to go play minor league baseball for the Royals? Or are you going to, or the Yankees were the ones who drafted him? Or are you going to go to Auburn? And that became a whole challenge of it for the next decade in terms of, is he going to play baseball or football? I mean, I actually think if the Buccaneers hadn't screwed it up, he would have played football. I think the money of football would have been so grand. If, but, the you know, the Buccaneers, when Bo was a senior at Auburn, they flew him in to, uh, they flew him into Alabama, uh, to Tampa Bay to take a physical. And that cost Bo his eligibility um, to play baseball as a senior. And Bo never forgave the Bucs. So, I mean, I, one of my favorite stories in the book is that after the Bucs wind up drafting him anyway, even though it was a really dumb move. And, um, you Culverhouse, the owner, wants to wine and dime him in tape in Tampa. So they fly him to Tampa. And Steve Young is a Bucks quarterback at the time. And the three of them go out to dinner. And you Culverhouse excuses himself. And Steve Young is sitting there with Bo Jackson. And Bo says, Listen, Steve, just so you know, there's no effing way I'm ever going to sign here. <laughs> All right. We got that lesson down. So, like, you know, they really, I think if like the Raiders had drafted him out of Auburn or the Jets or the Giants or someone, I think the odds are pretty good he would have gone there. But he, uh, you know, he was stubborn and he was de- he was determined that he was not going to give into that. His time at Auburn, it was it was intriguing because he was, you know, again, came in as, as a sort of star, but and immediately emerged as great. But his second year, he almost won the national championship, but they they were sort of Miami, that greatest Miami, Nebraska game. And then his senior year. They thought he had a chance to win it. That you know, he won the Heisman. It was a great career, but it was still a little unfulfilling. Even if you can say winning a Heisman Trophy is unfulfilling. You know, it's funny. It's almost like who is it unfulfilling to? Like it was, it was unfulfilling to. People wanted him to be Herschel Walker. That's the thing. Like it, that's really the truth. People wanted him to be Herschel Walker. And at Walker, Georgia, at Georgia, Walker was a god. Uh, Vince Dooley was running that guy out of the I formation. You know, for 35, 40 carries a day. 
And that wasn't Bo Jackson. Like he wasn't that guy. Also, he wasn't going to give you the emotional response you wanted. He wasn't going to be a monkey on a string for you. He wasn't going to dance for you. Like he was very like stoic and he was very, this is what I'm going to do. And um, it's funny in hindsight, he, the thing that really changed the texture of that senior year is sports illustrated did a cover story um, about the Heisman trophy and, and basically called Bo Jackson a dog and said uh, the Heisman Trophy should go to Joe Dudek of Plymouth State. <laughs> I remember that. That was ridiculous. Yeah. That was ridiculous. And I remember at the time being a kid and thinking, oh, that's kind of cool, Joe Dudek. And you realize now it's kind of some gross racist stuff. Like basically it's like we're going to support the little white scrappy kid from Division Three because we think this guy's lazy. And it was so like it was all these lazy tropes about the athlete who doesn't work hard, the athlete who takes himself out of games and like. It turns out one game, Bo had internal bleeding. Another game, he actually had gone horseback riding and a horse kicked his shin and broke the shin. And he didn't complain about it. He just played. So, like, he played in some weird times with some weird media coverage, you know. And the whole comparison with Herschel. I mean, Herschel was known for training and the thousand sit-ups, the thousand push-ups. And he was three years older, but they were actually the same height and same weight. And I remember you wrote in the book how they actually did a race against each other, which is pretty cool. That would have been a pay-per-view special to now if they did that. I know, but it would have been very a very disappointing pay-per-view special because um, I was super excited to find the time they raced because there was all this talk they raced, but nobody remembered it. And they raced at a, in a college track meet called the Dallas Invitational. And basically... Uh, you know, people are kind of into it, Bo versus Herschel, and Herschel just blew him off the track. Um, Bo was a very inexperienced track runner at that point. Um, he had a lot of talent. Herschel was really good and really fast, but it was like, it was basically one and done in the preliminary. That was the Bo and Herschel race. The one Auburn story I wish you would tell in the freshman year, when Bear Bryant, his what next time, I guess his last game he coached um, was when he jumped over the, the whole idea where he scored the touchdown Bo over the top was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably the iconic play in the history of Auburn, Alabama. Still, to this day, uh, Alabama had won nine straight Iron Bowls. And it was really the bane of Auburn's existence and Auburn's fans' existence and all that. And, um, you know, it's late in the game. They run this play where Bo leaps over the goal line for the score. And he does it. And he wins. And it becomes – the funny thing is this. It becomes this iconic play in the history of Auburn. And if you ask Auburn fans about it, they all know about it. Like, all of them know about it, right? And – um the next series, Auburn had the ball again, trying to just lock up the game. They were winning. And Bo actually fumbled. They ran the same play, Bo over the top. And this time, Bo fumbled, and all Alabama recovered. And the stadium, just there's deflation in the stadium. And and if Alab the Auburn's defense held Alabama, and Auburn wound up winning. But if Auburn lost that game, Bo over the top would have been forgotten in history, and people would just be remembering Bo fumbling the ball as a freshman. <laughs> so he got lucky in a way. It's kind of funny. Nobody remembers that. So he decides the whole decision you just mentioned about Hugh Alcoverhouse when the whole, do I want to go to Tampa? Do I want to play baseball? And then he chose baseball. And I, there was a little story you had in there, which I absolutely loved. You talked about how Buck O'Neill with famous uh, uh, African-American baseball player who actually saw Josh Gibson and Babe Ruth play and heard, mm -hmm. you know, actually played with them, saw Bo play and said that only three, those are the only three that could actually, that had the power when he heard the sound with the hit, the ball hitting the bat. Okay, so I'm going to tell you something, and this is, someone just asked me, you're actually the only the second person while I'm promoting this book to ask me about that, and the first was yesterday, so it's weird, weird timing. I don't know, I'm skeptical, like, I know the story is true, like, he, Buck O'Neill definitely said that, I've, he was sitting, he was sitting while Bo was taking BP, and um, he hears Bo hit the ball, and he says, I've only heard that sound three times in my life, Babe Ruth, Josh Gibson, and now. 
I'm a little skeptical. Like I've watched <laughs> a lot of batting practice. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying he was, uh, I've watched a lot of batting practice in my days. I was a baseball writer for a long time. I get it. McGuire. So I saw all those guys during the PD era to hit these long shots and it was cool. Is it really possible that only three people made a similar sound and he remembered all three sounds? I'm calling BS a little bit. I don't but know. He could link. He could link Ruth and Bo. I mean, there's so few many people sure. that could actually say that I was there for Ruth and Bo. Um, but, you know, when he was in, in the Royals, he had George Brett as a teammate and he came in. You know, I, I know that your story of the book is, he, you know, he came in as not like the greatest teammate because he said, you know, he's this big star and the rookie should know his place and all those things. Well, he wasn't a great teammate. He was an okay teammate, and it depended. He uh, he did some weird things as a teammate. The thing is, like, people think bullies only exist in high school, but they actually exist in sports, too. And I'm not <laughs> saying he was a bully bully, but he had some of that. And he uh, he would set up – he was a big archer, and he would set up his target in the Royals clubhouse, stand across from it, and shoot bows across the Royals clubhouse. Now, nobody liked that. Like, nobody on that team liked that. But <laughs> nobody was really going to say anything to him. He also – beat the living crap out of Kevin Seitzer for he couldn't stand Kevin Seitzer, the Royals third baseman. And there was this fight in the club in the, by the batting cages underneath the stadium where Bo basically choked him out and had to be separated from him. Um, he wasn't great about signing autographs. He didn't like signing baseball autographs during football season. He didn't like signing football autographs during baseball season. <laughs> the teams themselves never had his phone numbers. They didn't know how to reach him. He wouldn't give the, his number out. So there's one sort of funny, it just made me laugh reading about where Art Shell is asked when he's the coach of the Raiders. So when is Bo, is Bo coming Wednesday? And Art Shell's like, I think maybe. I'm not really sure. Like, because they actually did not know how to reach him. They had to go through his agent. So he was he was just a different kind of guy, you know? People are like, people will say to me promoting this. So it was Bo. So he's a great guy. And I'm like, I wouldn't say that. I'm not, I wouldn't say he's a bad guy. He's just really, really guarded. He is not super warm. You know, he is, he will bark at you a little bit. He's, you do not want to approach him during a meal, which is fine. That's, that's reasonable, but he's not your warm and fuzzy. He's not Deion Sanders, you know? And then you mentioned that when he, when he went to the Royals, when he was in college, he dated a zillion girls. It was everything was this, was that type of person who was out everywhere. But when he, he, he married, settled down, had three kids um, mm -hmm. and just lived a very quiet life in his house and hunted and do the, those things. He wasn't out on the town partying what we think of athletes, a lot of them today. Yeah. Yeah. He was not that guy. He kind of got sowed his oats in college and um, he just wasn't that guy. And in a lot of ways that probably hurt relationships, not that he cared. So it didn't hurt anything, but like, he wasn't going out with Marcus Allen and, you know, Cliff Branch and he wasn't drinking and he wasn't chasing women and et cetera, et cetera. There, there's no, no stories of him and Janet Jackson or Madonna, you know, it's none of that. He's just, he was kind of a boring guy in a lot of ways. Like it almost makes him more mythological. It really does. Like there are not a million pictures of him in nightclubs, not him outside studio 54 went on a visit to New York to play the Yankees. Like he just wasn't that guy. And then he decided to go to the Raiders. The Raiders drafted him. Um, and that upset the, his royal teammates. But also that was a big, you know, that was a big change. I, I mentioned, I bring up Jim Thorpe again, where he said, he, in the book he wrote, he said he watched the movie and thought it was to be intriguing to do baseball and football at the mm -hmm. pro level. But that was a big change to go and say, he told the Royals, I'm not going to play pro. And then he decided to go in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, the, the Royals were furious, absolutely furious. And his teammates were furious because if you're Willie Wilson or you're George Brett, and you've been on the Royals for a gazillion years, and you have it in your contract, whatever. You can't go water skiing. You can't play off-season basketball, things like that. And all of a sudden, this guy comes along. 
oh, and he's just going to play football and you're just going to let him play in the NFL. Um, and the Royals repeatedly warned him, warned his agent, you know, what if you get hurt? What if you get hurt? What if you get hurt? And then he got hurt. So they weren't without reason for feeling that way. I mean, his football career was great, but you know, as I said, he only played 10, 11 games a year and the iconic moments, the Bo, the uh, Brian Bosworth tackle. I mean, anybody should just go on and look at that. And you just said it was only 500,000 YouTube views or something. I thought it was amazing. It was one of the most amazing runs where he ran over Brian Bosworth. And uh, that was tremendous. And it just became sort of this legendary football player, even though his team didn't make the Super Bowl and he wasn't running for over a thousand yards, those type of things. Well, he just had this amazing speed power combination. And um, that game, actually, the Monday night game in 1987 against Seattle, people remember it for the Boz runover. But to me, there was this 91-yard run he had earlier in the game that is actually just magnificent. And I interviewed a lot of guys from the Seahawks. I mean, seven guys had angles on him on that run. One of their coaches told me that he was holding papers by the sideline. Again, this is like the full cure kind of thing. And Bo ran by and the papers went out of his hands. <laughs> Dave Craig, the Seahawks quarterback on that 91 yard run said Bo ran by and he heard the whoosh behind him. Like he heard, whoosh. Um, you know, I, there's just so many stories to tell. He's just ridiculous. And you talk about the swoosh. I mean, back in that second year when he was playing football in played really just four years of both sports at the same time, but they, when he was the best baseball player made the all-star game, the Bo had the Bo nose campaign, I mean, that was iconic. It was, he hits a home run in the all-star game and suddenly they run this crazy ad where they show Bo playing all, and it was, they were promoting the cross trainer, which and now we know what a cross trainer is. Back in those days, people didn't talk about cross trainers. So that was just, it all came together at once with Nike promoting him. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, that was amazing timing because the Bo knows that ad is still one of the most famous, maybe if not the most famous sports ad, Bo knows, Bo knows football, Bo knows baseball with all those athletes. And the Nike execs, they decided to run it, to premiere it during the All-Star game in the fourth inning. And Bo Jackson led off that game with his awesome home run to dead center. And it was just this moment of marketing and athletic synergy. And the Nike ad executives were all watching the game at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in Manhattan. And when Bo hit that ball, they all just went crazy and started jumping up and down and celebrating. And I'm sure the other people just in the restaurant just wanted to eat their hamburgers. But it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was great timing. And then you mentioned, of course, about his hip in 1990. You went through the whole incident. It's weird. Right after that, from my perspective, I had I fell in New York, and I I had a, they thought I had avascular necrosis. I went to a zillion doctors. This was two years after Bo, so that was on everybody's mind, and because MRIs didn't know how to read. So you mentioned how after he hurt his hip, like he was, you know, here he has this devastating injury that's going to ruin his career. But he's, you know, back going to dinner, doing interviews, actually dressed for a practice. It was crazy how like they didn't really understand what that injury was to him. Well, nobody had had it in pro football. It was totally foreign. So um, it's just people didn't know. So, you know, the severity of it was when he got the realization of the severity of it was when he got a scan a day or two later. And uh, the doctor points to a screen and says, Bo, you see all that black? It's like, yeah, he goes, that, that's your blood pooling in your in your leg. And that really was an eye opener to Bo, like, holy crap. And, you know, what that disease basically is a cutting off of the blood supply to the hip. And ultimately, your your body part dies because it needs blood to function. Uh, it was a devastating, devastating injury that changed the course in many ways of sports history. 
And then he goes and it was amazing. Then he decided he was going to work and train and do all those things he hadn't done before in terms of just exercising and, and doing all the practicing. And he got back to play actually at the end of the baseball season for the White Sox, which is just truly remarkable that you could recover from that with, with his own, with his bad hip, not the, not a prosthetic hip, but his real hip. Yeah, probably was bad judgment in hindsight because his hip was decaying. His leg was getting shorter. Nothing was good about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then the guy goes on and plays two full seasons with an artificial hip. And it's a 1990s artificial hip. It's an artificial hip your grandma would have used. Um, it's remarkable. It's one of the most remarkable things of his career is that he uh, he was able to recover and just return to baseball. Not what he was, but return and play that way is unbelievable. And if people would look at his statistics, I mean, he's still in like 25 home runs. Like today, you know, it's like a Joey Gallo number, sort of like, you know, you can, you know, he struck out a lot. But today, you know, his game was sort of suited for today's baseball, where it's like, we don't want you to steal any bases, just hit some home runs, make them long home runs. That's all we need. So, yeah, no, I agree. And I am, um, look, he wasn't the same player at all. He lost his speed and he lost some of the torque in his bat speed, et cetera. But like, it was an amazing, amazing return. It is his biggest, in many ways, it is his greatest accomplishment. The idea that this guy came along and played two full seasons on an artificial hip when everyone gave him up for dead, uh, it speaks to his athleticism. And you mentioned when you wrote the book, first of all, I like that you went to Auburn and talked to, as I mentioned earlier before, you went and talked to 100 people, 99 people knew who he was. And I have to say, I was when I was at Auburn, I noticed that too. Bo Jackson's everywhere in Auburn. Um, but he didn't help you for the book. He didn't give you any interviews, but you're not holding any grudges. And you actually did talk to him on the phone. You wrote in the book a couple of times. Well, I would have no right to hold grudges. He doesn't, um, he doesn't have any obligation to talk to me. You know, like a guy comes along and he says, he's writing a book on you. He's not, there's no obligation to talk to me. I totally get it. Um, and we, you know, we had a nice conversation early on. We really did. And he said, look, I'm not going to help you. I don't, I don't care if you're writing a book. It's just not something that interests me. And then you just go about it and you just report and report and report and dig and dig and dig. And I've said, I am, um, I got really lucky because he wrote a book in 1990 called, called Bo Knows Bo. And he did it with Dick Shap, who was a really great journalist. And I didn't know, but Dick Shap donated um, all his notes, all his audio transcripts, all the tape recordings to the Auburn library. And I'm pretty sure for about 30 years, they sat in the basement untouched and unlistened to. So that was like a gift from the journalism gods to have all that material in front of me. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, I, Jeff, I, I know you're super busy. I know you're promoting this book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. In the last three days I've read this. It is uh, it is just a great book. I mean, it's I love how, first of all, your writing style is phenomenal and it's easy to read and the background. And he's such a great character. You you actually so much as your writing style is great, but you actually pick the perfect character to cover and something that if people don't, you know, people who followed him should read this book and people who don't really know much about him if you're younger. I think it's like a must read for any young person coming up in sports. I appreciate that very much. I worked hard on it. I need a nap, <laughs> like a long nap. It took a lot out of me, but I appreciate it. Well, I think people who read it, when I'm reading it, I can see the passion. You know, I'm reading your words and I'm like, I can see the passion. I mean, you interviewed everyone. Like I was, the only thing I was like wondering, did you meet any of, interview any of his, like the kids that he beat up when he was a little kid? Like you had everybody. And I'm like, I was like when I was six years old, he punched me in the nose or something. I was. I, I did interview a couple of kids who were bullied by him. And there are a few quotes in there from him. Um, you know, it's much harder to remember things when you're six or eight <laughs> when you're 28. But I, uh, yeah, man, I did. I, uh. I was on an all ape, you know, an all out hunt to find everything I could about Bo Jackson. I think you did. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Can't wait to have you back for your next book. All right. Thank you.